Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Beth Mulcahy Esquire is the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Happy New Year. And welcome to class number one of our 2022 virtual HOA Academy. We teach this HOA Academy in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. My name is Beth Mulcahy and I'm going to be your presenter today. I am the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed working with and representing HOAs and condominiums for 25 years. My firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. And I also serve on my HOA board and have for many years. And today we're gonna be discussing three topics, 10 things that get boards into trouble and how to avoid them, how to set goals for your HOA and condo in 2022, and how to have a successful HOA or condominium in 2022. First things first, I always like to know a little bit about my audience, especially when I'm working with you um, in a virtual class. So first question is, let us know your current role in your association. Are you a board member? Are you a community manager? Are you an interested homeowner or other? And it's really helpful for me to get feedback throughout the class so that I can tailor my presentation to whatever demographic is represented most. Okay, actually, we have a pretty good balance today. So we have 69% of you here today as board members, 5% as community managers, and 23% as interested homeowners, and 3% as other. So great. So we have a, a good balance today of board members to learn more about their association. But we also have a good representation from homeowners and then a small representation of managers. Before we get into our main topics today, I'd like to briefly talk about two hot topics in Arizona that I think are important for all of us to keep an eye on as 2022 starts. Um, first, COVID's continued impact on HOAs and condos and how we can best pivot to adjust to the changing circumstances that COVID's giving us. We have new strains of the virus coming out. And then also what to expect to see in the 2022 Arizona legislature this year. They started their session January 10th. There already are a number of bills that have been introduced pertaining to associations. And we're going to be just giving you a brief summary of what's going on down at the legislature. So first things first, COVID. As we, we all wish that this was over. I know that many association managers, especially that I'm talking with and board members, are tired from all the challenges that the pandemic has placed at their footsteps or at their feet. Unfortunately, it looks like this is something that's going to continue on at least through the first half of 2022. And so we want to just talk about what are some things that associations can do to best support your community and to keep your community safe as we continue to see an uptick in the number of COVID cases throughout the country? If you're watching the news, reading newspapers, Omicron is the new variant that's spreading. It's creating large numbers of infections. Some people say that we've hit the peak. Some experts in the industry say that we've started to hit the peak. I hope that is the case. 
I hope that there won't be a new strain as they're predicting. Regardless, we have to continue to pivot as an association to keep our members safe and residents safe in our association and also to limit the liability of the association. So number one, if you have any indoor common areas, um, it is recommended that associations require people in those indoor common areas to wear masks. It's important to have continued sanitization of common areas such as gym and high touch points and HOA condos that are indoors. And we are still recommending virtual meetings for our board members. I know that we're planning at least for the first six months of the year to be doing the virtual HOA Academy virtually. And many of our clients have successfully pivoted to having virtual regular board meetings and annual meetings. We have a great cheat sheet that can help your association list conducting your virtual meetings so that they're in compliance with Arizona law. And we're going to be sharing that with you here. And a couple things to note about this. If you haven't yet transitioned to a virtual meeting, I would say that probably 80 to 90% of our clients have already done this. We're here to help. Please reach out to us. We can help you pivot so that you continue to have meetings throughout 2022 if you're unable to meet in person. Some of our boards are still meeting outdoors and social distancing. And if that's working for you, of course, that's fine. But most of our boards, I will let you know, are doing virtual meetings and they're actually really liking them. They're finding that they're getting better participation, less conflict, getting more things accomplished. And so it's been a win for many associations that may extend past the pandemic. Okay, next thing we're going to be talking about is Arizona legislature. The legislature is in session and we have seen a number of new bills introduced this year in 2022 that will continue to regulate associations. So a couple of thoughts, they've only been in session for about a week and a day, and we already have a sprinkling of bills that pertain to associations. Every week during this time that the legislature is in session, and it's likely that they're going to be in session for a long session this year, like last year, I think they closed June 30th. We anticipate that a lot of the budgetary constraints and issues on negotiating it, and in addition to the fact that we've had COVID year legislative sessions where we just haven't accomplished a ton of things. We think this year is going to be a big legislative year for HOAs and condos. A couple of thoughts. Some things that we think we will definitely see in 2022 in terms of bills being introduced, and we've already seen them. I think our firm just shared the cheat sheet that we have on the pending bills on Zoom and on Facebook. The bills that we think we're going to see here today are we already have seen one introduced on first responder flags. We've already seen one bill introduced on regulation of short-term rentals that will place some requirements on landlords and give the city's muscle to enforce problems with short-term rentals. Transparency by associations, that's something that we know the legislature likes to continue to require more transparency by associations. Green bills, political signs, informal meetings of residents on the common areas for political issues or for association issues. Expanding the political signs definition to include HOA issues and condo issues. We just really expect um, to have a big legislative year. And that's just a sprinkling of the bills that we fully anticipate will be introduced this year. As always, our firm closely monitors the new legislation each week in the Arizona legislature. And on the homepage of our website at MulcahyLawFirm.com, we will list an updated summary every week so that what's going on in the legislature, where the bills that pertain to HOAs and condominiums stand. If any are gaining any traction and we need you to write emails, we'll be contacting you definitely to contact your legislators if there's any really detrimental bills. I scanned through the bills this morning on our summary list and really the only one that stood out 
at me like a sore thumb was one of the bills that was introduced uh, this week, or excuse me, last week, that talked about taking away the association's right to foreclose or lien rights for a judgment. And I thought that was very problematic. And so, of course, that motion has any traction and starts moving. We'll be contacting you and asking you to contact your legislative representative to make sure that bill does not move forward because that would take away a lot of teeth for associations and collecting our assessments from unpaid owners, from unpaid uh, debtors. Okay, we're going to switch gears now. And I always like to know my demographics too, as to who's here today. So we're going to be asking you in our next poll, which we're just going to be getting up here on the screen soon, which city do you reside in? Okay, today it looks like we have representation from Chandler, 11%, Glendale, 2%, Mesa, 6%, Peoria, 1%, Phoenix, 14%, Scottsdale, 40%, Surprise, 2%. And other 24%. So great. Thanks so much, everybody, for being here today. It looks like Scottsdale wins for having most people that are here with us. Great job to the Scottsdale team for getting the word out to your residents in Scottsdale. Okay, let's get right into the materials for today. We're going to be talking about 10 things that get boards into trouble and how to avoid them. In 25 years practicing law representing associations, I've seen a number of things that continue to get boards into trouble. And so what I'm going to be doing is breaking down some common problems that I see and then giving you advice on how you can avoid getting into this situation so that you're not sued and that your time on the board is hassle-free. So you actually accomplish things instead of getting bogged down with lawsuits and difficult owners and fighting with people. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is confusion regarding the Arizona open meeting law for HOAs and condos. And how we see this come into play is that sometimes homeowners will claim that the board is making decisions outside of a a board meeting, an open board meeting, or that they're improperly going into executive session. So I just want to give you the quick 411 to talk with you a little bit about how can you best comply with the open meeting laws. We're going to just give you the basics. So number one is Arizona has a special open meeting law just for condominiums and planned communities. And what this law says is that anytime there's a quorum of the board discussing association business, it's considered an open board meeting and you must follow the open meeting law. This law is different from the laws that pertain to school boards and city council. We have our own special open meeting law. So quorum of the board, Meeting to discuss association business. That is considered an open meeting where the open meeting law kicks in. So open meeting law in Arizona says that owners can attend, listen, and and participate during appropriate times during the meeting, but they have to receive notice of the meeting in order to know when the meeting is. And so how should notice be given to owners that want to attend the open board meetings? The board should give 48 hours notice of the open board meeting by posting or any other reasonable means. That doesn't give us a lot of direction. Many associations don't have a bulletin board or they have an association that has many entrances to get back to properties. And so putting it on a sandwich board or on a bulletin board at the common areas may not be enough to notify owners. So what we found is that other reasonable means is typically defined as putting it on your website, sending out an email, letting owners know when meetings are, sending a communication through your newsletter, saying that our meetings are always the first Thursday of the month, that 10 a.m. at the pool or whatever. That's all those ideas are sufficient notice under the law. I also recommend clearly explaining in the notice that the meeting is going to be held by a video conferencing or teleconferencing or Zoom or whatever the other platform you're using if you plan to, to use that platform for a virtual meeting. 
and provide on that notice instructions as to how owners can attend. Sometimes I'm seeing associations that will say, contact this person to find out how to log into the meeting. That's onerous. And I would recommend instead that you're putting all that information in one place on the notice. A few other things you may want to state that if you're having an executive session at that meeting immediately following the open board meeting, you should indicate that an executive session will be immediately following the meeting and indicate what topics you're going to be discussing in the executive session. Because there's a portion of the law that says that anytime we go into executive session, that we have to notify the owners what we'll be discussing, what executive session topics generally we'll be discussing. And don't forget that if you're having an executive session and not an open board meeting in conjunction with it, you still have to give notice of the executive session, even if you're not gonna, they're not allowed to attend. It's just a quirky thing under the law, but we have to let owners know that we're having an executive session and the topics that we'll be discussing under the law during that executive session. We have a great cheat sheet for you on tips for conducting virtual board meetings, which I believe our firm has already shared with you. Take a look at that. We talked a little bit about that in the introduction as well. Okay, when can members talk at a regular board meeting? This is a hot topic. So a lot of boards will have at the beginning of the regular board meeting, they'll have what we call an owner forum where owners may get one minute or two minutes to raise concerns regarding their association or praise the board for everything that you're doing that's so good. And we recommend that because it gives the owners an opportunity to state what's on their mind. And if they want to stay for the rest of the meeting, they can. If they don't, they can move along and know that they were heard by the board. The board doesn't have to have a lot of dialogue with the owners during this owner forum. It's A-OK to say, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your comments. We'll consider them. The only other time that members can talk under the law during the meeting, the board meeting, is before the board takes formal action on something. So just so you know, that is something that if an owner requests to talk after the board makes a motion and there's a second during the discussion period, the board can put a reasonable time limitation on how long they talk. However, they should be given an opportunity to talk before the board takes formal action. If you're conducting the meeting virtually, when the board is discussing association business, it may be necessary to have somebody muting the owner so that they are interrupting the discussion. I think all of us have probably been you know, part of a Zoom call where we have somebody with the TV in the background or the phone ringing or the dog barking. And then most video conferencing software like Zoom allows the organizer the power to mute owners when it's not an appropriate time to have noise in the background. Don't forget, under the open meeting law, we have to provide an agenda to every owner who attends. And so a lot of associations are putting the agenda out as the notice of meeting so that you're providing it to everybody at that time. If you're meeting in person outside right now during the pandemic, you could have a stack of agendas so that when people show up at the meeting, they can pick it up and follow along as to what's going on at the meeting. If you're using a virtual platform, you can share it on the screen during the meeting so that um, residents can follow along and know where you are on the agenda. Don't forget that you have to take minutes of any regular or executive session meeting. The meeting should be simple and short, just basically what was decided. We have a great cheat sheet on this called board meetings. On the back side of that cheat sheet, we have a little handout on how to take perfectly proper meeting minutes that may help your association. Let's see, how do we handle owners who interrupt or want to contribute during the meeting? Again, give them a friendly and polite reminder that this is a board meeting and that there's appropriate times to talk and let them know when those times would be. 
let's see, to be in compliance with Arizona law, I just wanted to mention again that the board needs to make an announcement at the end of the open session that it's going into executive session and provide the section under the law that allows the board to go into closed or executive session. Just some of the most common topics to go into closed or executive session are advice from your attorney, delinquencies, violations, and issues with the performance of a vendor or an employee. Okay, let's talk about two last topics on open board meetings and how to comply with the open board meeting law in Arizona. These are the two that a lot of boards stub their toes on. So let's make sure that we are have our antennas up on this. The first thing is use of email by the board to discuss business or make decisions. Be careful on this. The legislature is very clear that they want all discussions and votes done during an open board meeting. And so if your board is discussing things by email and voting, you potentially could be violating the open meeting law. So be mindful of that. Now, there are times where you can use email to make a decision. That would be in the case of an emergency meeting. You could either... An emergency meeting is where you suspend having to get 48 hours notice. And it's okay under the law. And the board makes a decision because there's a true emergency pending and, and we can't wait 48 hours to notice the meeting and have an open board meeting. So in those circumstances, you can make a decision by email or have a board meeting by Zoom or in person outside. The only thing you have to know is that you, sh under the law, you are required to take meeting minutes. And then at the next board meeting, after the emergency meeting, read into the record what happened at the emergency meeting and what was decided. So just some kind of practice pointers. Uh, remember, just to stay out of trouble on open meetings, be aware of the law. Make sure that you're giving an agenda to owners if they attend. Make sure you're properly noticing the meeting 48 hours in advance of the meeting. Make sure your executive sessions, the notice of those are being provided to the owners at least 48 hours in advance of the meeting. And also, please make sure that you're careful not to be using email to make decisions by your board or to discuss items unless there's emergency circumstances that dictate that. Okay, let's talk next about owners complaining about short-term rentals and problems with short-term rentals. This is kind of problem number two. We have a great cheat sheet on rental properties, which we're going to be sharing with you. Uh, we have some really great tips on how to best deal with rental properties. And the first thing that I can say is a lot of associations are wanting to ask for information that they're not allowed to under the law, or they're wanting to charge fees to landlord to rent their property that they're not allowed to do. So I want to make sure that we're all clear so that you don't have any legal issues when handling short-term rentals in your association. So what can associations require from an owner landlord if the owner landlord is renting the property? And this is all set out under Arizona law. So the association can ask for the name and contact information for the adults who are occupying the unit. They can ask for the time period of the lease, including the beginning and the ending dates of the lease. And they can ask for a description and the license plate numbers of the tenant's vehicles. If the association's a 55 and over community, you can also ask for proof of age from any person that's going to be occupying that unit so that we continue to maintain our 55 and over status. What fees can we charge an owner if they're going to be renting their property? The association can charge the owner a fee of not more than $25. And that fee is charged. The association can request information regarding the lease and ask the uh, landlord to pay the $25 fee. If the landlord owner doesn't pay $25 fee and provide the information to the association about their tenant, the four categories that we just talked about, 
we can charge a $15 late fee on top of the $25 fee to lease the property. So there's no other charges that you can charge the landlord for having a tenant in the property. Now, of course, if the landlord's tenant violates the documents in any way, you can find the landlord for the behavior of the tenant after giving notice and an opportunity to be heard. Okay, what are some solutions for dealing with rental issues? We hear a lot of complaints about short-term rentals. I have so many stories. I wish I had more time to go through them with you today. So here's some solutions on how to best handle, manage, deal with short-term rentals or other rentals in your community. If you don't have a provision in your documents that allow you to regulate short-term rentals, and so in 2016, the law changed. And what happened is it required associations that want to have limitations on short-term rentals, like any rentals in our community needs to have a 30-day minimum rental period for you to rent. If you don't have that in your CCNRs, it's impossible or very difficult for you to require an owner to comply with that if they choose not to follow it. So first pointer would be, if you want to implement a short-term rental restriction, it needs to be done by a, a CCNR amendment. We have a great cheat sheet on amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions, which should be a great deep dive for you. Those cheat sheets can be found on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com, or we're going to be sharing it with you here during this presentation. So number one solution for dealing with rental issues, if you don't have a short-term rental provision in your documents, or you want to prohibit rentals altogether, you can do that, accomplish that through an amendment to your CCNRs. You definitely want to have your legal counsel involved to help you through that process. Another important solution for dealing with rental issues, make sure that you're documenting evidence of the bad behavior by the tenant and then providing it to the landlord. Police reports, letters that may have been sent to the landlord, keep all of those information outlining what the tenant may be doing that is violating the law. Complaints from other owners, make sure you're keeping copies of all of that because we may need that if we have to escalate things and, and turn this into a legal matter. Pick up the phone and call the landlord or hire our firm to do this. Directly reaching out to the landlord to let them know about the behavior of the tenant and giving them that written documentation is really important to having the landlord understand that the tenant's a problem. Continue to find the owner landlord for the tenant's behavior. The best way to get compliance is to make it hurt in the landlord's pocket. I can tell you after 25 years experience, you want to get the tenant to comply. You need to find the landlord's behavior because the landlord is going to, is leasing the property because they want to make money. If they start to recognize that the tenant is costing them money, they're going to be more likely to evict the tenant. Last resort is to file a lawsuit or a complaint with the Arizona Department of Real Estate against the landlord owner if there are continuing problems with the tenant. Okay, so that's number two, dealing with short-term rentals. Number three, outdated and inconsistent association documents. So we already just talked a little bit about this a minute ago, where if you don't have a provision in your documents you know, regarding short-term rentals, it's a good idea to implement a rental restrictions or a CCNR amendment. But a lot of you here today may be sitting here listening to this conversation and your association documents haven't been amended in a decade, two decades, three decades. The rule of thumb, your association's documents should be amended at least once every 10 years. And so what, what are reasons to amend the documents? There's new laws being passed almost every year in our legislature pertaining to associations that likely conflict with what your documents say and you want to bring your documents into compliance with Arizona law. 
you want to remove all that outdated developer declarant language. You want to make the document as easy and simple to understand. Um, you want to remove provisions that maybe aren't relevant or that you can't enforce anymore. So those are the most common reasons for amending documents. So we have already shared with you our cheat sheet on amending association documents. And in that cheat sheet, we give you a five-step plan that works on how to amend association documents. And so I really encourage you to take a look at that cheat sheet because not having current up-to-date documents can get your association in trouble. You may be not complying with Arizona law. You may have owners who are violating the documents and you're unable to enforce them because of bad language in the documents that just doesn't support the board to take legal action. How much does it typically cost between somewhere between $800 and $5,000, depending on how many changes are needed and how antiquated your documents are? Our firm offers a free 15-minute review of every association's CCNRs that would like us to do that. And what we do is we provide you with feedback on what it takes to amend the CCNRs and some brief suggestions on how to improve your CCNRs and what changes you should make to amend them. So I encourage anyone who is on in the situation where you haven't had your documents amended in the past decade to take advantage of that free 15-minute review that our firm offers. The best way to do that is just to email me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com. And it takes us about 30 days to get back to you with that free review. Okay, next problem. Difficult and disgruntled homeowners in our community. If I could say the one thing that causes board member burnout, it would be this. Dealing with the negative Nellies, the naysayers, the people that complain about everything. I know that when I was president of my association for one very long year, the thing that drove me nuts the most as president was the difficult owners, the disgruntled owners, the people that no matter what we did, they were never happy. And there is an element of that when you serve on the board. Just so you know, you should know that when you sign up to be a board member, you have to develop a thick skin if you don't already have it. And so, and you also have to learn how to manage these people so that they don't make your time on the board so horrible that you burn out and want to leave. Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet on this topic too, how to deal with difficult people and harassment. Okay, so what is a gadfly? This is a little uh, a term that was coined through a publication by CAI, National Think Tank, that you know provides education to associations. And basically a gadfly is an expert at criticizing, pinpointing the errors of others, demands change, but of course doesn't want to help when you ask for help, interrupts, attacks personal integrity, alleges conflicts of interest, thinks that the board is behaving improperly, thinks vendors are getting giving kickbacks. There's all kinds of ways that a gadfly can buzz around your neighborhood creating problems. What's the best way to deal with a gadfly? First, if you're coming to your board meetings, creating problems, establish some ground rules for how the board meetings are going to be run, when it's appropriate for owners to contribute during the meeting, like during a homeowner forum or before the board takes formal action. Make sure that if anybody is out of order at the meeting, that we give them a warning and then ask them to leave if they're you know, exhibiting behavior that's out of control, loud behavior personal attacks, swear words, violence, all of these things are things that are not acceptable. And, and the board has every right to enforce rules at a meeting and ask them to leave. Ask the difficult owner to explain the exact issue that they're upset about in order to show that you're interested in communicating with them and trying to help them. Listen carefully to what they say. 
after they state what they complain about, ask them what what they want. What can we do to make the situation better? And interestingly, sometimes I've been at board meetings where we ask a gadfly this question and they don't have an answer because they just want to come and complain. Putting them on the spot, what exactly do you want us to do to make this situation better? Makes them have to come up with a solution too. Also, be really careful to not respond with anger, argue with these people, trade insults. That's what they want. They're energized by conflict getting under your skin. And so just be really nice. When I was the chair, we had a couple of people that came. When I was the president of my association, we had people that would come to the meeting sometimes. And really, they did not say one positive thing. And how I tried to best handle it was I would just say, thank you so much for being here. We know you care about our association and we appreciate your feedback. And then I would just move on. That was really successful. It just shuts them down and it makes the board look professional and know that we're treating this like a business, even though somebody has been really rude to us or has engaged in behavior that's really unprofessional or above it. And we are just moving forward to continue with the business of the association. And remember, you don't have to rebut every comment by every member. You can just listen and say thank you for your participation here today. Don't forget to utilize parliamentary control. Know when to table motion. State when somebody is out of order. Stay on topic during your board meetings so that you don't, you know, let a gadfly take your meeting off into left field and you don't get any business done. And don't forget that under Arizona law, if you have a gadfly that really is bordering into harassment, there is a section under Arizona law which protects association board members. It's a a general law that pertains to harassment. Basically, if you are on the receiving end of endless abusive telephone calls or emails, you're being verbally assaulted in public by angry owners or they're making threats against you, you can go to your local justice court and get an injunction prohibiting harassment against this owner. It's an individual board member against an individual owner. You know, the courts don't take these lightly and you're going to have to prove that this person has made a threat of harm against you or has actually harmed you in some way, like physically pushed you. Sometimes it has to be more than one action. if It's just a threat, but the threat's serious enough, usually you can get it. And basically the court issues an injunction compelling that person to stay 50 feet away from you and may compel that person not to come to board meetings anymore. So if you're in that situation, definitely reach out to our firm. We can help you navigate that. Okay, the next problem, fraud and embezzlement, manager or board member stealing money from an association. We have a great cheat sheet on this. I, this topic is a, it's a hard topic to teach because it's scary. No one wants to be thinking that when you're serving on a volunteer board that this could happen and under your watch. And so, you know, what we try to do is just simplify the, the topic so it's not so scary. And just let you know what are some warning signs that you should be looking for as a board member or as a manager overseeing or as a homeowner who might think that there might be something funny going on in your association. So what are some warning signs of potential fraud and embezzlement? Missing bank statements and reconciliations where the board can't get a copy of the bank statement. They should be able to receive a copy of it every month. You should be seeing that. General ledgers that don't balance. Missing and altered documents photocopies of things other than originals. Obviously, you may get a board packet that's photocopied. But if the treasurer wants to see the original bank statement, you should be provided with that. Unexplained cash shortages, like you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. We don't have enough money to pay this month. 
or bounce checks. These are all things that are warning signs that there could be some issues in your association. Increased past due amounts. We've seen some associations where the homeowner's payments are directed to be deposited in an account that's not the association's. And, um, you know, when we send the homeowner a violation letter for not paying their assessments, the owner provides proofs that they paid, but we don't have any proof that check was deposited in the association's account. So that's something that should definitely get your radar up. Duplicate payments to vendors, being very mindful of that. Sometimes that's something that we see where there's duplicate payments to a vendor and the second payment gets deposited somewhere else, not by the vendor. Unauthorized purchase transactions and payments for unspecified services. So just like writing a checkout to a vendor or a board member without having any supporting documentation as to what that's for, whether it's a reimbursement or whatever, those should all be warning signs. Okay, so now that I've scared you with all those warning signs, let's talk about what are some tips to prevent theft and fraud. Keep your records up to date. Every month, there should be a financial report given to the board, including bank statements, a ledger for the prior months, financial statements. You should be seeing this every single month. Make sure that the reserve funds, which are typically the money that you have in reserve, it's your usually your largest amounts of money, uh, chunks of, of money for your association. Those should be managed by the board and it should take a majority of the board vote to transfer money out of that reserve fund. Like you shouldn't just have Anyone shouldn't have the ability to transfer that electronically. Just one person or the manager shouldn't be able to just sign a check for the reserve um, fund. It should be majority of the board and it should be difficult to get that money transferred from one place to another. Um, require two signatures on all checks or transfers greater than a pre-designated amount. It's different for every association because we have some associations that have five or 6,000 um, members and you write a lot of checks or you have a small association that only has 20 or 25 members, you may write a few amount of checks. So you'll have to determine what that pre-designated amount is for your board to sign double signature. Some associations may say, okay, that is anything over $2,000. We need to have two signatures of the board. Prior to signing checks, you should look at the supporting documentation as a board member to make sure that you're signing something that is legitimate charge for your association. Do not ever sign a blank check as a board member because that is going to come back to bite you in the future. That's a very bad idea. Keep a small amount of petty cash on hand. Review bank statements and reconciliations every month. Regularly look at your delinquent accounts and receivables for your association. Make sure you have adequate fidelity bond insurance so that if somebody does take money from your association, that you have coverage through insurance so that your association can be made whole again. Don't forget you are required to do an audit review or compilation of your books and records every year. And so 2021 just closed out. The law in Arizona says that you have to have an audit review or compilation by June 30th, 2022 of the 2021 books. If your board discovers that funds are missing or that there is something that you feel very uneasy about regarding potential warning signs for fraud, reach out to your trusted advisors. Your attorney it was, would definitely be the first person that you should reach out to. If it's determined after talking with the attorney that, hey, I think there is an issue here, we need to remove that suspected fraud perpetrator from the position of control and you know, put a stop on bank account activity. We'll need to notify an insurance carrier for your association and to come up with a strategy and plan as to how to best manage that difficult situation. 
Okay, next subject we're going to talk about reserve funds. How do we need to have one? What does a reserve study cost? Where do we start? So we have a great cheat sheet on this topic. Even though it's not legally required under Arizona to have a reserve fund or a reserve study, it's really important that every association is managing common areas and has significant common areas that you know need to be maintained and, and replaced over time that you have an adequate reserve fund. And that's probably like 95% of associations have common areas. And the cheat sheet that we are provided to you here today gives you a great overview um, of what reserves are and why a reserve funds is important. And then having a reserve study to help you plan for it. Just basically reserve funding allows associations to provide for the repair, maintenance and replacement of the association's assets. So all of your capital improvements in your association, it's kind of like a savings account to plan for the future so that when the useful life of these items is up, you have the money in reserve to pay for it, to fix it. Currently, Arizona law, as I said, does not require associations to have a reserve fund. Some documents may require it, but regardless, it's a good idea for you to have a reserve fund. So how do you know how much money should go in the reserve fund? You hire a professional reserve study company to give you advice by preparing a reserve study report. It's usually like a 20 to 30 page report that tells you what assets need to be maintained by the association, what their useful life is as of the date that the report is made. And then it tells you how much money to put aside each year in savings so that when that useful life of that object is up, you have the money and you can repair it, replace it, and not have to have a special assessment for your association. So basically, reserve funding is planning for the future. A reserve study helps you plan to put away a certain amount of money so that your assets, when they need to be repaired or replaced, um, can be paid for with the money that you have in your reserve fund. Typically, a reserve study is going to range anywhere from like $1,500 to $5,000, depending on the size and amenities of the association. Reserve studies, once you do one, typically need to be updated once every three to five years, depending on how large your association is. And this is just a really important tip because a lot of associations don't have the money to maintain their common area capital improvements. And what happens is owners get upset and they end up suing the association for failure to maintain or failure to provide services. So keep in mind the importance of a reserve study and reserve funding. Okay, number seven. Our next problem is how to handle records requests and how long should we keep records for our association? We have two great cheat sheets on records requests. One is our cheat sheet on the top 10 things you need to know about Arizona Community Association Law. I think number 10 is records requests and how to handle them. And then also we have a cheat sheet on how long do we need to keep records and association's documents. So the bottom line on records requests, owners have a right to see association books and records. They can see basically everything except for a few very small categories. So know that if your association, if you have an association owner who says, I would like to make a records request to see the bank statements, the financial statement, contracts for a vendor, all of these things are things that the owners you know, have a right to see. Now, there's some small exceptions, but like 95% of the records that the association owners can see. And once they make the record request, we have 10 business days to provide those records to that owner. If they want copies of something, you can charge 15 cents per page for those copies. So what are the things that you can withhold and not give to the owners under Arizona law? 
for records requests, anything that's privileged communication between the attorney for the association and the association they can't have. Any pending litigation, anything that is there's lost it by or anything pertaining to that, an owner would not be allowed to see. Executive session meeting minutes and how much we pay our vendors. So if you're going to provide the contract, you would have the right to redact or blacken out how much we pay the vendors. But realistically, my feeling on this is the owners can ask to see a copy of the budget and they'll be able to figure out pretty quickly how much we're paying the vendors. So I, I wouldn't play hide the ball on that. And then anything that's pertaining to the job pers- job performance of an employee or an independent contractor, like the board's reviewing them or they're unhappy about something and they send a letter. That would be something that we could withhold as well. Don't forget that associations cannot withhold records from owners if they request to see them unless they're in one of those two categories of information that they can't have. Our cheat sheet on community association um, records and documents has great information on how long you have to keep records. And I would encourage you to take a look at that so that when a new board comes in, maybe you need to do some editing of records that you may not need anymore. Maybe you're going to digitalize your records. This is just a great little summary for you that will help you as you determine what records you have to keep and for how long. Okay, our next problem, a lack of volunteers. We can't find anyone to run the board. What do we do? I think we we can all agree for the 60 plus percent of board members who are here on this call today that being a board member in an association is a rewarding but often thankless job. And so you get burned out after a while. I would be lying if I told you that every time my term comes up on my board, I have this ping pong game going on in my mind saying I don't really want to run, but I do want to run because I want to continue to live in a nice place. And I want to uh, make sure that our property value stays up and that association is maintained. But honestly, I get sick of the hassles after a while. And I'm sure some of you are right on board with me. You understand what I'm saying. And I think sometimes time's up and you're done. Your tank is full and you want out. And so if you can't find people to run for the board, here's some suggestions on how you can find people to serve. First, send a letter asking for volunteers to serve on the board. Reiterate how important it is for our community to be maintained and that we need leaders to maintain the association. If that doesn't help, you need to call or email people in your community who are reasonable or may have served on committees or who have attended board meetings and ask them once. If they say no, ask them again, because that's how I got back on my board. I got asked a couple of times. First, I said no. And then I said, okay, I will do it. On the second or third time that they asked. Being proactive and asking people, lots of times board members, candidates to run to the board don't just fall in your lap. You have to actually plan your exit strategy when you're serving on your board. Talk with your attorney or the association about options. If you've tried those two things and you can't get anyone to volunteer. Our firm has sent a letter to the membership of communities saying, if we can't get any board members, this association may have to go into a receivership and that will be very expensive for your association and you will end up paying more in the long run if that happens. Also, how does that look for your property values if the association is being run by a receiver? Um, I can tell you that's not going to be a good thing, a good optic for you and how your association is being run. And remind owners that a strong community always needs new volunteers with fresh ideas. So try to actively recruit people to help your board on big projects and community parties and get to know people through that way um, so that you have a pool of people that you might be able to reach out to when it's time for you to move on from being on the board. Okay, next problem, problem number nine. 
architectural review committees. We monitor every day all cases that are filed on business days in Maricopa County Superior Court and all the other Superior Courts throughout the state of Arizona. And the one common denominator that we see when associations are sued is there's two cases that typically are the most common cases for associations to be sued. One would be lack of common area maintenance, where maybe somebody has a trip and fall or an accident on the common areas, and now we're suing the association. The second area is architectural review committees' decisions. Architectural people wanting to do something with their home or their lodge or their property. And they're unhappy with the decision that was made by the architectural committee. So in our experience, one of the most common lawsuits against associations is for decisions that are made by our architectural committee. So what are some suggestions on how to avoid litigation or disputes regarding the architectural committee? A few things. Number one, the legislature passed a law several years ago saying that the architectural committee must be chaired by a board member. And I think that's a good idea because we need to have collaboration between the architectural committee and the board so that each side knows what the other side is doing. So having a board member chair that committee is a great idea. Make sure that if you're reviewing applications and your architectural committee meets on a regular basis, that under the open meeting law, you have to notice that meeting as an open board meeting. Now, most of our architectural committees don't meet on a regular basis, but some of our larger associations do meet at the same time every month. And if you are doing that, it's an open meeting requirement to follow open meeting law in Arizona. If you're going to, like sometimes boards or architectural committees try to be too nice, like they receive an application for an owner to do something. And instead of it's not a complete application, or maybe they have questions. When that happens, it's important to deny the application and ask for more information versus leaving it open and then asking for more more information. Many documents have a provision that say that you have to approve or deny the application within 30 days of receipt. And just by asking for more information, it doesn't stop that clock from ticking. And so be real careful. If somebody gives you an incomplete application, deny it and ask for more information. Watch out for deadlines. If there are deadlines in your documents to approve or disapprove something within 30 days, that is a hard deadline and you must follow that. And lastly, to seek out the advice of your trusted advisors, your lawyer for sure, your management company. When you get applications for architectural changes that are difficult or that are you've never seen before. I mean, it could be like a solar panel application. There's a special solar law in Arizona that allows owners to have solar on their properties and associations can't effectively prohibit the use of solar energy devices. Maybe you're trying to, somebody wants a guest house and there's never been a guest house before. Views protections, the height of homes, going from turf to desert landscaping, a real modern home and a traditional home community. When something is a curveball, reach out to your trusted advisors to talk about what's the best way to handle this. We have a great cheat sheet on architectural review committees. I encourage you to look at that as you're navigating the architectural review process. Okay, the last problem that we're starting to see more questions on is owners displaying flags and political signs. I just want to give you a quick little refresher on what the law says on this. First, remember that under Arizona law, In an HOA or condo, um, the association cannot prohibit the display of the American flag as long as it's consistent with the federal flag code or any official flag of the United States, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, military flag must be displayed um, as well as the American flag consistent with the federal flag code. 
there also are some other flags that are protected and that the associations can't prohibit. And that's going to be the POW MIA flag, the Arizona State flag, the Arizona Indian Nations flag, and the Gadsden flag. I recently had a question from a client where we had an owner that wanted to put a fly underneath the American flag, first responders. And even though it wasn't one of these flags that was protected by Arizona law and, and associations are required to allow, to allow, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and the first responders have definitely been key contributors to protecting individuals and helping our country. And this particular association wanted to prohibit it. And the owner was pushing back and appealed it. And they came to me for advice. And I said, I think this is something you should allow. I think you should, in light of extenuating circumstances with what's going on in the world and our country right now. And sure enough, we saw in, once this year's legislature opened that they're now trying to expand um, the, to have first responder flags be covered as flags that can be flown in an HOA or condominium. Okay, political signs. We're seeing political signs even when there's not an election pending. And I'm getting questions on that. And so just remember that associations cannot prohibit indoor or outdoor display of a political sign, except when it falls within a certain time period. So if an owner wants to put a political flag on their property or a political sign, it can be earlier than it can't be earlier than 71 days before the day of a primary election. It has to be taken down 15 days after the general election. And so just keep that in mind as you're navigating these hot topic political flag type things. There's a specific time window when people can be displaying these flags or these political signs. And we want to be mindful of how we respond to owners when they put up these political signs when it's not in that time period. I think a great way to handle it is just notify them that, hey, this sign is only allowable during an election cycle and um, during the specific time frame of 71 days before the election and it must be taken down 15 days after. You know, in 2021, we got a lot of questions about politically charged signs and flags and first responder flags, like I said, Black Lives Matter flags, rainbow flags. Generally speaking, we were relaxing. We were telling clients to relax enforcement on some of those signs, mainly because we just don't want them to be on the national news for being that HOA. And what we found is that approach worked really well. As long as the flag wasn't offensive to somebody like the flag king containing foul language. Generally, what happened is the person flew it for a little bit or had it on the property for a little bit of time and then they moved on and they took it down and it was just kind of peaceful resolution of it. Okay, so we have covered our 10 topics. I want to just give you two little bits of information um, that I think will be helpful for your association as you're navigating 2022. Number one, every association should have goals for 2022. And we have a great cheat sheet that can help you write up your goals. And it's called our Eisenhower cheat sheet. I'm on the Eisenhower method on how you can prioritize the things that you want to get done in 2022. And so we're going to be sharing that with you right now. Maybe at your January or February board meeting, somebody on your board should take the lead and come up with the first draft of the goals for 2022 and then talk about it as a board. And then revisit those goals every quarter to make sure that you're progressing. And if it could be something like... Our reserve study says that we need to take these, maintain these three things or repair these three things. and. We're going to be doing these in this quarter and this quarter. And our cheat sheet actually gives you a great example of how an association set goals. So I hope that you'll take a look at that. And last but not least, I want to end with what are my tips or secrets for associations to be successful in 2022? So just a quick little uh, rundown of 
these are the things that you need to do to be successful as an association in 2022. The first thing I would say is these are the key qualities of the boards that I found have been successful over the past 25 years. Your board needs to act as a team and you can have dissent on the team, but you all need to be working towards the success of the association. There's nothing you know more sad to see than a divided board. They can't get anything done. All they do is fight. And so you need to prioritize the interests of the community ahead of the interests of individuals, ahead of personality disputes, and try to play into the strength of each board member. How can they contribute in a way that their strengths can help our organization be better? Have honesty, integrity, and transparency as a board. In order to lead your community, you have to be trustworthy. And the best way to you know, foster trust is by being honest with your owners. So when you make a mistake, own it, fix it, admit it. Always carry yourselves with the highest level of integrity and be transparent about how things are operating in your association. Commitment and determination. Serving on your board is honestly, it's very hard. There are going to be times when you are in your term that you are going to want to quit or that you are going to be so frustrated that things just aren't going well or that people are being difficult or people are complaining and not focusing on all the good things that you're doing. So just know that there's going to be hard times when serving on your board and you just have to push through them and work, keep tirelessly working. It's not a life sentence. You're not going to be doing it forever. And so just try to recognize that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Do the best you can. Try not to let anybody who disagrees with you or makes personal attacks against you get you down. Stay focused on the goal, which is serving your community and trying to make the best decisions possible to help your association. And then last but not least, the, the last tip for you know associations to be successful in 2022, communicate. You have to communicate to your owners all the time to have a successful association. And sending out newsletters, communicating with the board, the owners about accomplishments, failures, things you could do better, things that the board is working on, having your meeting minutes of your meetings available on your webpage. So owners who are interested and can attend meetings can read those meeting minutes. Being a good listener, when homeowners come and talk to you about problems and trying to work with them to resolve issues, think about the message you're trying to send. And organize your thoughts in the communications that you send to your owners in a positive and professional manner. And then last but not least, clear up any miscommunications or misunderstandings with owners by listening, asking questions, being patient, be empathetic, and be professional as you're navigating any sort of disagreements that you may have with associations. So we have a cheat sheet that talks a little bit more about what are some secrets of successful associations, a little bit more of a deep dive. If you're interested in learning more about that's going to be a a deep dive. Now we're going to go into our question period. So I'm going to just go through those questions and rapid fire and answer them. The first question is from a board member. The association has a verbally abusive homeowner. He's verbally abusive to board members and workers the board has hired. We have read Mulcahy's cheat sheet on tips for dealing with difficult people. What type and amount of documentation is sufficient for the association's attorney to draft a letter to the verbally abusive homeowner? So really the first step would be to just try to resolve it by having the attorney send a letter to the owner. And I guess what I would just need to hear about is I don't need to hear like a video recording or anything like that. I probably would just need to hear feedback from 
the receiver of the verbally abusive behavior. So if it's the manager or the board member, just send me an email outlining what's been happening and give me dates, times, what occurred. And then I can look at that and come up with a plan as to how we want to structure sending a letter to the owner. Interestingly enough, we sent out a couple of those letters last week. Actually, we send out a couple of those letters every week, just so you know. And if the person is really abusive and difficult, what our firm will do is say, all communications now go through our firm. You do no longer have the right to communicate with the manager or the board member. And that works really well because we tell them that all communication needs to be in writing. And we really, we handle it from there so that the board member or manager doesn't have to take that abusive uh, behavior anymore. So what documentation, just give me a rundown as to what's been happening, the dates, give me examples of things that this person has done, and then we can craft a letter that um, addresses the issues. And if you want, we can also be the contact person for that owner going forward. Okay, our next question. Our board enacted as part of association rules that solicitation and electioneering on association property will not be allowed. This is used to squelch board candidates from any campaign activities beyond a single formal controlled meet the candidates night and candidates biography background statements submitted with their application to be candidates on the board. Does this association rule conflict with the Arizona Rise Statutes 33-1808? which states in part, notwithstanding any provision in the community documents, an association shall not prohibit door-to-door political activity, including solicitations of support or opposition regarding candidates or ballot issues, and shall not prohibit the circulation of political petitions, including candidate nomination petitions or petitions in support of or opposition to initiative, referendum, or recall. Okay, so does the rule that you have in your association saying that solicitation and electioneering on association property will not be allowed, does that conflict with Arizona law? It does appear that it does. It's unclear under the statute whether this is for HOE business that we have to allow it, this storage or political activity, or if it's on a more grander scale, which would be like a state, local, federal election type thing. Here's one thing I can tell you just from being in the trenches for so many years. People do not like it when neighbors knock on their door and want them to sign a petition or hear for 20 minutes something about a political issue, whether it's an HOA issue or a state, local, federal, whatever issue. And so I think that's going to work itself out. People aren't going to say, please don't come to my door again. They're just not going to answer it. So I I would be opposed to having your association continue with that rule because I do think it conflicts with state law. Okay, question three. What information is recommended to pass on to new board members when the current board members are retiring from the board? Okay, I think a really good thing to do would be give them as a resource our firm's website because we have a ton of information on duties and responsibilities of serving on the board. We have videos, we have cheat sheets on those topics. Encourage them to attend these uh, live presentations that are virtual or to watch the videos after the fact if they can't be with us here live. I think what I would do is at the first meeting after the transition, just give them an, an update as to what are some pending issues that might come up during this next year and offer to be available as they have any questions as they progress through the next year. 
I know my association is just this Thursday going to be putting in a new president. And I had a brief discussion with the incoming president about some of the nice dynamics in our community, what are some goals in our community, my thoughts on appointments for committees. And basically what I just said is I'm just here as a resource. If you have any questions, I'm still at the table. I'm still a board member, but you get ready for a difficult job. This is not going to be an easy year. And here are some challenges that I faced when I was the president. And here's some mistakes I made that I wish I could take back and do differently. And I wish you luck and I'm here. And I think that's the best thing you can do. The funny thing is, is and this happened to me too, when I was coming in as president, I thought I knew better. I thought that when I came in as president, even with all my experience representing associations for so many years, one of my favorite board members, he's not on the board anymore, an older gentleman who was in his 80s. He'd been on the board for like 15 years. And he tried to warn me on something like within the first two months of my presidency, um, like, hey, I think you might be taking a wrong turn on this. And I remember thinking to myself, no, I'm not taking a wrong turn. We need to be more transparent on this. We need to give this group what they want. And it ended up really backfiring on me and it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. And so just recognize that just make yourself available to be there for that person and say, here's some, here's my experience. Here's some things I wished I'd done differently. And here's the things that are going to come up in the next year. And I'm here if you need me. I think that's the best thing that you can do. Okay. Next question. How do we resume enforcing CCNRs that have not been enforced over the last several or maybe many years? Landscaping is the biggest issue. There are requirements for minimum landscape components, but many are not in compliance. This detracts from our community and we want to begin working to correct the situation. Oh, this is a tough question because we may be bumping up against an owner being able to argue that because we haven't enforced something, that we've waived our right to enforce it. So just as a, a starting point, my one recommendation I would say is you can enforce maintenance of landscaping because the grass is growing, the leaves are dropping from trees and uh, things die on people's, people's property. And so what I would say is you can enforce making sure that the property looks nice and that it's well-maintained. But let's say that your provisions say that you have to have eight trees that are a certain type of tree on, on the property. And this person only has four trees and they're not on the approved tree list, but they've been there for four or five years or six years or 10 years or 20 years you're likely not going to be able to legally mandate that they change their lot to comply with whatever the guidelines say, the eight trees that have to be a certain kind of tree. So I think you need to look at this on a case-by-case basis. What you might want to do is have a community education program about, okay, it's so important for us to continue to make sure our properties look nice and try to get voluntary compliance by giving suggestions on things that people can do and some things you can mandate. And then there's going to be some things you may need to get advice on whether or not you can enforce it if you want to make somebody do something. Okay, we have a very troublesome condo owner who is challenging virtually everything that takes place to operate the HOA. And one of his inferences is that we do not have the authority to increase our dues by $15 a month, which is a 5% increase without approval of our owners. Should he foolishly choose to not pay the increase, according to our CCNRs, he is delinquent, which voids his right to vote. Now, my question is whether that prevents him from attempting to gain a spot on the ballot or getting on the board since he cannot vote as an owner. Okay, so it sounds like you've got a gadfly. Sorry to hear that. 
The first thing I would say is look at your documents, see if that increase is allowable without a board vote. In my experience, it probably is because it's such a small amount, but you should go to the section in the CCNRs that talks about increasing assessments and you should make sure that the amount that you're increasing it is within the limitations that allows the board to increase without getting a board of the membership. If this person doesn't pay. And even if it's just the 5% increase, they don't pay. And you'll have to look to see whether or not you can suspend the voting rights. Typically, that's in the bylaws, possibly in the CCNRs. And then you'll want to notify the owner in writing that their you know, right to vote has been suspended because of the delinquency. Now, the question is, can they run for the board? Can this person run for the board if they're delinquent? So in my experience, yes, typically they can. You want to look at your bylaws or your articles of incorporation to see if there's anything in there that says that you can't be a board member if you have a delinquency that's owed to the association. Most documents do not have that provision. So you're likely going to have to let this person run to the board. Okay, next question. The majority of remaining parcels in the subdivision yet to be built were subject to a foreclosure. And there was a trustee's deed upon sale transferring the property to another LLC. Is this new LLC owner now the declarant? So did Class B rights in the HOA? Several feel that Class B now no longer exists because the majority of parcels changed owners. Thus, no current declarant and then HOA meeting is needed to elect an HOA board. It just really depends. I hate to say that on this, but it, I have to see what your CCNRs say. So a couple things to look for. Go to your CCNRs and see how declarant or developer is defined. Typically, unless there is an assignment of the declarant's rights, the declarant is no longer, you know, going to be a class B, you know, member of your association. Even the person that, you know, may have purchased the majority of the remaining parcels. Usually as part of, if there's a big chunk of parcels being transferred as part of a trustee sale or maybe even as a short sale or something, usually there is an assignment of rights that's done. But with a trustee sale, that just means that the bank was foreclosing and somebody else just picked up this land, the remaining parcels at a trustee sale. So it's very possible that they did not take the property with an assignment of benefits to be the declarant. So I'd go back and look at the um, definition of declarant and class B voting, see how they word it, see if this minority owner that just bought a minority of the remaining, excuse me, a majority of the remaining parcels, see if they fall into that category. You're probably going to need to reach out to a law firm that specializes in representing associations like our firm to get our opinion on it. And it's actually kind of important because sometimes the declarant doesn't have to pay the full assessment rate. They can um, amend the documents sometimes without approval of the membership. And they can be controlling the board, likely. So I think it's important that your association gets some advice on that. Question seven. It looks like we're about halfway through the questions after this one. Our architectural committee is all board members. Can the committee still make decisions by email? Hmm. This is kind of a sticky wicket. A lot of times architectural committees and the board are the same in associations, especially when you don't have a lot of other people that are volunteering. When the architectural committee meets and make decisions and a majority of the board is making decisions by email, that is an open meeting violation. Even though they're acting as the architectural committee, you still have majority of the board making decisions. So what I would recommend is just at your regular board meetings, 
review the architectural items as an agenda item and make your decisions during the open meeting at that time. If you are going to make decisions as a board by email, it's the board slash architectural committee by email. What you may want to do, I mean, I'm not recommending that, but if from a logistical standpoint that your board doesn't meet as often as these applications are coming in, at the next regularly scheduled board meeting, you should read into the record what was decided and so that there's a paper trail with meeting minutes. Now, if you're going to disapprove something that's going to be controversial and result in a lawsuit, for all, please do it in an open board meeting. Do that architectural disapproval in an open board meeting so that if you get sued, they're not going to claim that you violated the open meeting law or that you um, didn't meet properly to make a decision on um, the architectural application. Question eight, if an owner complains about tenants in another unit, does the owner that complains have to provide their name? Okay, so I think what you're saying is, so an owner is complaining about the tenants and does the association have to provide the owner's name that's complaining? It depends. There is a kind of a very strangely worded statute in the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act that says that when the association sends a violation letter to an owner, if the owner responds back by a certified mail to that violation letter, the association has to provide who witnessed the violation or who complained about the violation. So it's possible that if that sequence of events happens, that you're going to have to give the person's name. Really, the, the kind of the key thing is that the response to the association's violation letter by the owner would have to come in to the association by a certified mail requesting this. Since this bill's been on the book or since the law's been on the books for at least a decade, I've only seen that less than five times. So it's unlikely that would happen. They could make a records request for any complaints that have been made against their unit. And I think that's fair game. They would be entitled to see that. So if an owner complained about them in writing, the association would have to turn that over. Okay, next question. From one of my favorite clients. Good to see you here today. Objections to the notice of or an action taken at a meeting shall not be considered from a member who attended the meeting unless objections are made at the meeting. A member not in attendance may submit a written objection to the secretary within 10 days following the meeting. My question is whether this requires the posting of draft meeting minutes within 10 days. Okay, so you have a bylaw provision that's talking about making an objection after the meeting. So something happens at your meeting for your board. And if somebody is unhappy about it, unless you object to it within 10 days following the meeting, apparently, I don't know what that means. I guess it means that. So do we have to post the draft meeting minutes within 10 days to meet this section in our bylaws? I would say no. This section, and I am familiar with your documents. You have probably too much stuff in your documents, in my opinion. Just too many nitpicky type regulations like this. And I guess there's no purpose, I guess I would say to this, because if somebody really objects to something that happened at a meeting, they can bring it up at the next meeting. They can send a letter to the president of the association saying, hey, I'm a board member. This happened at the meeting. I'd like to revisit this again, or I feel uncomfortable with it after the meeting. But there's nothing under state law that requires you to do this. And there's nothing under state law that would require you to get those draft meeting minutes to the board within 10 days. So if they wanted to object to something, they could. So I, I hope that helps you with this particular question. Question 10, what are the pros and cons of setting some utility and monthly bills on auto pay? 
it is difficult that we are reviewing invoices that are now from two months ago. So I'm all in favor of putting utility and monthly, regular monthly bills on auto pay. As long as the treasurer is looking at the bills, even though they're on auto pay, there should be a summary given to the treasurer every month to make sure that we're paying our bill and that we're not overpaying or paying late fees or whatever. So I think that's fine. What I would do is just set up the protocol for that at a board meeting and how it should be presented is either the treasurer or the manager should just let the board know that we're planning to do this and find out if there's anybody that has objections. Next question would be, should financial summaries be put on the HOA website each month? You're not required to, but I think it's a really good idea because as I said on the secrets to successful associations, the boards that are the most transparent and the boards that communicate the most have the fewest problems. And so if all that information is on the website for anyone to look at, if they're interested in the financials of the association, I think that's great. Now, would you put bank statements on there? No. You might want to put your year-to-date budget, your financial statement, which talks about assets and liabilities. Those would all be appropriate things to put on your website that would help people if they're interested in, in seeing more information on the finances. Okay, three more questions. There is a five-member board that was just elected. The board agrees on the president, but none of the rest of the board members will take on the treasury and secretary position. What should we do? Okay, so you've got four people on the board who don't have an officer position or don't want to do an officer position. I think what I would do if I was looking at this situation is I'd look at the bylaws and see if the treasury or treasurer and secretary, there's any limitations on it. Like they have to be different people. And then I would, obviously the perfect solution would be that of those four remaining board members that aren't the president, that we have two people, separate people step up, one be the secretary, one be the treasurer. If that doesn't happen, maybe you could get one person to do both jobs if your documents don't prohibit it. Typically, if you have a management company, being the secretary isn't that difficult of a job because they handle a lot of your things. So maybe the president can also serve as the secretary and then you just need to find somebody to be the treasurer. I wouldn't recommend having the president be the secretary and the treasurer too, just because there's no checks and balances. Keep that in mind. If you're having difficulty getting people to step up, maybe you need to get our firm involved and we can have a meeting with the board and just remind everybody that, hey, you signed up for this. You, we need people to step in as the secretary and treasurer. And I would look at the documents to see what kind of restrictions there might be in terms of can they hold the same position and um, does it have to be separate individuals, et cetera. Okay, next, we actually got one more question added. So we have three more questions. Our, our CCNRs restrict renting our townhouses if the owner purchased the property after 2004. Some homeowners who purchased after 2004 are renting their townhomes and telling the HOA that they're letting their relatives live there for free. These owners knew the CCNRs before they purchased. What is an HOA to do? Hmm. It's always difficult to prove that somebody has a renter in the property especially when they say, oh, it's our family that's being there and that doesn't violate the rental provision. Well, it actually might if there's money being exchanged. So I think what I would do is I would have our firm send this particular owner or owners a letter asking for documentation as to who's in the property and pinning them down as to more specific information. Oftentimes the renters, they will talk to people at the pool or whatever. And so if anybody has a discussion with the renters and we find out that the stories aren't jiving, we can send a letter to the owner regarding 
the information that we've been provided. But I would say pin the owner down, make them put it in writing so that now if they're lying, we have something in writing that they're lying about. And you, I suppose you could knock on the door of the tenant and ask what is your relationship to the property, et cetera. That's a little bit aggressive, but it's something that could be done. Oftentimes the neighbors, the direct neighbors know exactly what's going on. So you may want to ask them too. Okay, last two questions. What if someone volunteers for the board that you think will be a problem on the board? Mm-hmm. Yes, we see that often, right? Where somebody volunteers to be on the board and they've been a problem in the past and you're just worried that being on the board is going to just be a nightmare. Well, there's really not much you can do in terms of prohibiting that person from being on the board just because they're difficult, they're, they're not easy to get along with. If they get elected, you know, they are going to be board members. Something to think about is sometimes when the difficult person gets on the board, they quit pretty quickly because they realize what a tough job it is. I've seen that happen many times. Sometimes they change. And because honestly, when I got elected to my board in 2016, I'm going to say, I don't think our board really liked me because I had a little disagreement with them in 2016 prior to me getting on the board. But I think that everybody would agree now that I have stepped up and I've been a great, helpful board member wanting to make our community better. So sometimes people change and your perception of them may change. If they're really difficult when they get on the board and you don't, you can't work with them, you could consider doing a removal petition. That's really divisive and expensive for associations to do. So hope you don't have to do that. But the bottom line is there's really not much you can do. Just play it out, see how it goes, get advice from your trusted advisors if things aren't going well as to how you can best manage it. They're really difficult. Another thing to do would be thinking about having a code of conduct for all the board members, including behavior at the meetings and behavior outside of meetings. And we have a sample code of conduct in our uh, cheat sheet called uh, Board Member Code of Conduct on our website at mulcahyawfirm.com. Okay, another question. Some owners and board members think the HOA does not have jurisdiction or the right to require any architectural applications and written approval process regarding landscaping prior to changes being done. If the HOA doesn't require this and doesn't know what owner's plans are in advance and lets owners do whatever they want, what are liability ramifications for the board and HOA? What if they plan something that's not keeping within the community? Can the HOA be seen as negligent? So I think what you need to do is have your attorney look at the provisions in your CCNRs on architectural applications and what needs architectural approval so they can make a final call as to whether or not this is something that the board, the architectural committee does need to review before an owner makes changes. So I think you need a formal determination on that. If that is not something that you can regulate through architectural process, then yeah, you are stuck with whatever somebody puts in there. So I hope that's not the case because it's important to have uniformity and have everything looking nice. Regardless, you would have the right to enforce maintenance of the law through maintenance provisions. So if they install something that's not being maintained, under like 100% of the documents in Arizona, you're going to be able to make them maintain it to an acceptable standard. Really appreciate you being here today to learn more about association law and how to make your communities better, avoid problems, be successful, and set goals for 2022. I'd like to personally thank the neighborhood services departments from the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for your teamwork and continued partnership with the Mulcahy Law Firm to put together these amazing virtual classes for your residents. 
we've been partnering together for these classes now since March, 2020, right when the pandemic first started. And our videos on our virtual HOA academies and other videos have seen over 50,000 views by people throughout the state of Arizona. And that's truly providing a great service, a place where they can come for free information about how to best run HOAs and condominiums and get their questions answered for free. If you've enjoyed this class today, I would like to just make a request that if you're so inclined, please uh, reach out and do a review on our firm on Google, Yelp, or Facebook. It really helps us to get our rating higher on Google so that when owners are trying to find information on Arizona HOA and NEMA, our information pops right up so that we can assist them and hopefully answer their questions with our cheat sheets or our videos. Some quick update on our education plans for 2022. We're still conducting our first Fridays where you can uh, dial into our office virtually for our first Fridays free dial-in or call-in. And at that, you can ask a question at no charge. And that's always the first Friday of the month. Our next one is going to be the first Friday of February, which will be February 4th. And we log on at nine o'clock and answer questions until they're all answered. We're also looking forward to continuing our partnership with the neighborhood services from all around the Valley of the Sun in Arizona. For our virtual HOA Academy, we're going to be having those the third Tuesday of the month. We're going to be doing a virtual HOA Academy in 2022 in conjunction with all these different neighborhood services departments. In February, we have two online virtual classes in addition to our first Fridays. We have our second virtual HOA Condo Academy at 11 a.m. on uh, February 15th. And that's going to be going over what are board member roles and responsibilities. And then we're also going to be doing a special class for the Scottsdale Neighborhood College on Wednesday, February 16th at 1 p.m., also virtual on HOA and condo finances and how to read them, understand the budgets, et cetera. So that'll be an interesting class, especially for those of you who are treasurers who, or who want to keep a close watch on association finances. So don't forget videos of this class and all of their prior classes and cheat sheets can be found on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. I hope everybody has a wonderful 2022. I wish your associations the best of luck. Please know that I'm here for you as a resource as you move through 2022. And I hope you all have a great rest of the week. For more information on future classes, seminars, and more podcasts, please visit our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. The antenna bar Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening.